Thanks for tuning in to MANA, a short daily meditation to feed hungry souls with God's Word. These episodes were prepared by ordained ministers for a radio broadcast called Voice of the Church and are now republished by the Reformed Perspective Foundation, a Canadian charity that applies biblical truth to the issues of our time. Here's today's serving. We're going to look at the New Testament and specifically the end of Christ's life on earth. I know that we are in Passion Week and should be dealing with the progress to the cross, but we're dealing with what happened after the cross. It's all one story, one awesome story of redemption. Matthew 28. Here we read, Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end. Of the age. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we enter our text, you would agree with me that the words that Jesus shares or imparts to his disciples and indeed the church some 2,000 years ago are as important today as they were back then. And I think you would also agree with me that the words that he chose were carefully chosen, that he had a purpose in sharing them. And more than that, there is a sense of expectation in these words. There's a sense of urgency that this is going to happen, that the disciples would go out, and indeed the church would go out and make disciples of all nations until Jesus returns. Carefully chosen words with great expectation. This means, of course, that this command was not to be ignored, and it's meant for us Christ had 40 days after his resurrection to let the church know, let his disciples know, and it seems 500 others, that he had truly risen in bodily form, that he had conquered sin, that he had conquered death. And in these 40 days, he had to tell them 
what they had to do next. Jesus actually didn't leave Israel. The radius of his departure from Israel may have been about 250 kilometers. He didn't make it to Beijing. He didn't make it to Sydney. He didn't make it to Burlington. He didn't make it to Amsterdam. Now that belonged to the church. He wanted his church to become part of his mission plan. He wanted us to see the tent of worshipers, all these children of Abraham, because it's bound up in his covenant to Abraham. In his covenant, he wants to see more and more worshipers coming together, bending the knee, and worshiping him as the king, the exalted king. He wants that tent of worshipers to enlarge, to include people from every tribe, language, nation. This has been called the Great Commission. This is our title, or the church's title, or whoever titled it. Jesus didn't say, now here's the Great Commission. But it's a good title. Because it was never to become the Great Omission. It was a Great Commission. It was a Great Commission that has not been revoked. There is no expiry date to this divine legislation. The only date of expiry to this divine legislation is the return of Jesus. Until that day, this commission is operable. It's ours to fulfill. And of course, Christ will ultimately fulfill it through his spirit. But it's ours to heed. And this great commission, of course, is founded on the great commandment. It's interesting that the great commandment is shared before the great commission. Because if you don't love God and your neighbor, there can be no commission. We first love God and we love our neighbor. And then Jesus says, okay, if that is foundational in your life, and it should be, the next thing that you need to do is to share that love with others. And that's why we have the great commission. On the foundation of the great commandment. So understanding all that, we're going to get to our theme now. Take heed to our master's call to go and make disciples of all nations. Take heed, take heed, take heed. And we're going to look at three things as we take heed to our master's call. First thing that we're going to consider, this call is given with divine authority. The stamp of heaven. Secondly, this call comes with a divine plan. It's actually quite a simple plan. There's not a lot of conditions or loopholes in this plan. We don't need to buy a lawyer to unravel all the difficult terms in this legislation. It's simple, but it's divine. So it comes as with divine authority. It's a divine plan, and it comes with divine presence. Jesus said, I'll be with you always to the very close of the age. His divine authority, plan, and presence. Let's pick it up in verse 17. When they saw him, we read, that's his disciples, they worshipped him. What did you expect them to do? This is their redeemer. This is the one they saw battered, bruised, broken, utterly destroyed on a cross. His last breath being breathed. Him going into a coffin of sorts. Being put in a grave with a stone rolled in front of it. They thought he was dead and dead for good. And when they meet their resurrected Lord, their resurrected Savior, I ask you, what else would they do? If you were to die today, and you meet your Savior in glory today, what's going to be your posture? You know the answer. 
Your posture will be one of lying flat down, holding his legs, holding his feet, bending down before him and worshiping him as the great king and your savior. And you will pour out your heart to him in praise. Of course they bent down and worshiped him. What's the connection between their worship and the great commission? Their worship of Jesus and Jesus sending them out. What's the connection? I think the connection is this. That the great commission flows from great worship. First I said the great commission is built on the great commandment. But now I'm saying the great commission is also built on great worship. Great worship. As Piper said, mission exists because worship doesn't. We want more people worshiping our Savior, worshiping our King. But the fact is, you make known what you worship. You make known what you worship. Your worship is a reflection of what lives in your heart. If our heart is full of the things of this world, what we can buy and what we own and what we do and who we are, it's very easy for us to, to proclaim that. Say, look at my house, look at my car, look at my education, look at my gifts. And we're worshiping those things. And we're denying the king of king his due worship because all of these things are actually getting in the way. We make known what we worship. Or another way of saying this is we make known what we love. And if it's Christ in us, if he's the hope of glory in us, if he's our passion, if he's our joy, if he's our delight when we get up in the morning, I'm telling you something, you will, you will try to make him known during the day. But if he's not, if he's an abstraction, just an idea, or as I tell my children, this faith that I have, you have to have it too. It's not just your daddy's faith. You need to believe in Christ just the same. If he's getting you up in the morning, if you're excited about your Savior, when you live your day out, you will try with all the weaknesses that you have to make him known because he's the object of your worship and you want other people to worship him too. Is it true? But Matthew is honest and it's not a book about men because the next line it says, and, and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. It's not anticlimactic. They, they, they're, they're meeting their savior. Their only response should be one of worship, but yet some, some doubted. They, they didn't really know. Is it true? Is this really Jesus? I think this is in here because Jesus is not calling perfect people to be his ambassadors in this world. The disciples were sure not perfect men. We've got deniers in there and proud guys in there. None of us are perfect either. We're receiving this commission from a perfect risen Savior given to an imperfect people, a people who doubt, people who are confused, people who have degrees of apathy towards him, people who struggle with sin, with addictions. That's who's receiving this commission. Some doubted. Have you ever doubted? I've doubted. Doubt's a constant sin that we have to fight. But maybe because of this doubt, Jesus begins by saying this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. One way to kind of squash and nullify those doubts is to claim your position of authority. There is no reason to doubt. I have been given all authority. It's been given to me. You can trust me on this. This word authority actually points to two realities. The first reality that this word authority points to is the legitimacy of Christ's rule. 
that Jesus Christ, upon receipt of his resurrection, has the right to rule the heavens, the earth, and the under earth. So we read in, in Philippians 2, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then it says what? But God exalted him to the highest place. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and confess the name Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus is Lord. He is seated at the right hand of God. God exalted him to the highest place. There is no higher place in all the universe. That's where Jesus is sitting. And he's, he's ruling the heavens and the earth. Jesus says, I have all authority now. We may lose our jobs. We may lose different things. There's always going to be a cost. And then that's why Jesus says, he says, I come with divine authority. I come with a divine plan, which is perfect for the glory of my kingdom. And I also come with divine presence. And that's so beautiful, beloved. And that's where I'll finish. He says this, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I'm going to be right there with you to the very end. And even if they destroy the body, they cannot destroy your life. It's secure with me. That's the gospel and the grace that we've been given in Jesus' name. Amen.